Happy Friday, everyone. Today is July 31st. Brianna Taylor's murderers are still on the loose, and this is The Delve. We begin this episode noting that it has been 140 days. 140 days since March 13th. What is the significance of March 13th? Well, it's actually the day Brianna Taylor, a 26-year-old African-American emergency medical technician, was brutally murdered by the Louisville Metro Police officers, Jonathan Mattingly, Brad Hankinson, and Miles Cosgrove. For those not familiar with her story, three plainclothes officers executing a no-knock search warrant entered her apartment in Louisville, Kentucky, using a battering ram. Brianna Taylor's boyfriend believed that the plainclothes officers were intruders and shot in self-defense. The officers returned fire, shooting more than 20 rounds. Brianna Taylor was shot at least eight times. She received no medical attention for more than 20 minutes after she was struck. The officers had the wrong address. The actual house was more than 10 miles away. And to add insult to injury, um, the suspect they were searching for was already in custody. June 5th would have been Brianna Taylor's 27th birthday, and now it has been 140 days since her death. One officer has been fired, two have only been reassigned, zero have been arrested or charged. On May 15th, Brianna Taylor's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit. However, they're facing a bit of a legal hurdle. It's pretty close to impossible to successfully sue a police officer in a civil case, and that's due to a judicial doctrine known as qualified immunity. This legal peculiarity tragically means that public officials, like police officers, can only be held accountable in civil court for violating a person's rights if those rights are clearly established in already existing case law. Right, I know it's complicated. (laughs) So, in layman terms, qualified immunity means because we've never held anybody accountable for this, we cannot now hold them accountable. This logic obviously becomes ridiculous quite quickly, because if no one is ever held accountable, you cannot ever establish a first time. There are now movements across the country not only demanding justice for Breonna Taylor, but working to overturn qualified immunity. In Massachusetts, the fight against qualified immunity has reached a state house. The Massachusetts House and Senate have both released separate bills to address police reform, with the Senate bill calling for the abolishment of qualified immunity. Today, we speak with Zane Crute, president of the Mystic Valley branch of the NAACP. He joins us today to give us a glimpse of what the call against qualified immunity looks like on the ground. Hi, Zane. Thanks so much for coming on with us today. How are you? I'm doing well, Shailen. Thank you so much for having me this morning on this beautiful Monday. Absolutely. Zane, tell us a little bit about yourself, about the organization, and about your branch. Sure. Well, I've been the president of this branch for four years now. Oh, wow. The Mystic Valley Area Branch has been in the community for ni- since 1977. It represents Arlington, Everett, Malden, Medford, Winchester, Woburn, and by the way, of some other neighboring towns and cities as well. Wow, that's great. I, I didn't realize that you had been president for so long. That's, that's fascinating. That's great. With so much going on, and especially with like uh, police brutality and Black Lives Matter and all this stuff, there's like these really special privileges um, that the police have. And one of them is qualified immunity. What exactly is qualified immunity? And, you know, just kind of walk our listeners through how it 
protects police officers? Sure. Well, qualified immunity came from a case in 1967 called the Pearson versus Ray case. It pretty much states that an officer cannot be personally held liable for doing something on a job unless it deliberately violates a constitutional right. And it's not really meant to shield from liability, but oftentimes, you know, it protects the police from even having to go to trial in the first place. So essentially, it creates that immunity and it makes it really, really challenging to hold police officers accountable. Tell me a little bit about the fight against qualified immunity in Massachusetts. What does that look like, you know, for you and, and your organization? Well, uh, the NWSP was pretty pleased with the overall Senate bill. It had some things we wanted to see, such as, you know, the ban on like excessive force, the setting up uh, the database. But obviously the police unions and some of our friends in our community are really against, you know, taking a stricter stance on qualified immunity. Personally, I would like to see it abolished, but we would settle for having it extremely limited, but obviously an ongoing fight. Police unions really don't want to budge on that one. So I guess the route you took was a legislative route, uh, having the Massachusetts Senate kind of put a bit of a um, constraint on qualified immunity? Absolutely. We have all the NWSP branches in, the, in Massachusetts roll up to like the state conference level, which in this case, it's the New England Area State Conference which encompasses all the branches in our state and the uh-huh. other New England states that aren't Connecticut. So we all took really the same stance of going at this. We took, we want to support the Senate bill and get the strongest bill possible passed, but at the same time, we want to really encourage a tougher, stricter stance on qualified immunity. What other uh, strategies is the NWCP currently using? Uh, we're reaching out to our friends in the media, doing podcasts such as this one right now educating people, you know, spreading the word, because I feel like there hasn't really been a lot of education on this in the past. Like, I remember when Rodney King happened when I was very young. It was 1991, this black and white video shot by a bystander left TV viewers across America and around the world stunned by its brutality. A year later, when the officers were acquitted, L.A. exploded in rioting that left 55 people dead. Everyone always wanted the same thing. Why do police officers keep getting up? Why does this happen without really knowing the root of the problem? Now everyone's starting to ask more questions and open up and they're starting, to, they're starting to be like, okay, qualified immunity, this is this piece right here that we're missing. Now what can we do about this? Have you seen a significant change in the way that people are responding to the call? I, I, I know that you were mentioning that this has kind of been like the same thing since the Rodney King era, this call to actually limit police power and police brutality. But do you see like a, a difference this time around? Uh, I see people listening more, people trying to learn more. Different groups are going at it from different ways. Like, you know, there's the, I'm not endorsing every single way or 100%, but like, you know, there's the defunding the police movement. Some people are saying, do we got to shift allocation in budgets? Will this do it? Other people are taking a real strict stance, abolish the police. Is this the, is this the movement? So people starting to take, ask different questions and try to come at it from different ways. So walk me a little bit through the legislative process. Correct me if I'm wrong. The Senate has passed a sweeping bill on police reform. Yep, uh, two eight two zero. Yep. And then, what about on in the House? Well, now the House is going to be a little tougher, but like you know, the Senate. This is their bill, which has a lot of support from the Black and Latino caucuses. But now we have to get the same thing to go through the House. Tell me, I guess, a little bit about that struggle. Why might it be more difficult in the House? Well, it depends on who we have elected in each position. It depends who. Uh, the lo- who's lobbying in each one, and it's just, you know, how complicated our political process gets. Most people don't even know who to reach out to, who to call, who to support. So it's just a 
lot of moving parts going on in terms of the Senate, the House, getting the governor's desk and eventually getting a bill passed. And why do you think so many politicians are reluctant to embrace policy changes, especially some that have such popular support? I think people are just fans of the status quo, especially things that have been working well for people personally. If something hasn't really, you know, cancer or heart disease or something, if it hasn't really impacted your family or impacted a friend, you don't really think about things as much when they're not like, you know, hitting your home. So I think at times politicians don't want to go after something so that changes things so drastically. How do I want to put this? I guess annoy some of their, you know, constituents or supporters, police unions, whether it's other unions, whether it's, you know, individual voters. We don't actually hear a lot about the role that police unions play, I guess, especially in, in, in this type of fight. Can you kind of explain what role they've played in the last few weeks or, or months? Sure. Well, police unions, it's their job to, like any union, to get the best possible working conditions for their workers. Nationally, we have uh, probably something about 900,000 police officers. So that's a lot of people, a lot of voters. And the police get the budget from, you know, our towns, our cities. So they get a lot of power. They get a lot of say. So any organization that's so large in the country, throwing the NRA and some other groups, get a lot of political clout. The politicians seem to listen to them. It'd be fair to say they're pretty influential. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then... When police unions are kind of in negotiations with with cities for their contracts and stuff like that, how central is qualified immunity? Is this something that's just kind of like, we just know it's going to be involved in like these negotiations or is it like explicitly written out? Uh, We are explicitly writing it out, but I think it's one of the things that if the police unions have have the ability to do, they would like to have this one thing left out. They're like, okay, so let's say we have a $10 million budget. We lose a million dollars. Okay, let's say we have a new... We can't do needing chokeholds. We're going to use body cameras. Okay. I feel like this is the one piece of the puzzle they're going to fight hardest to keep out. Okay. So this is like, this is like do or die. They have to keep this. They, they, they think they do. They think it's essential for police officers or other public servants to do their job. That's, that's their argument. Is there any other kind of profession <laughs> that has this privilege? Uh, I guess we could say teachers or whatever. There's, there's teachers at times that have, I guess, inappropriate relationships with a student and then they go on unpaid uh, leave and then they work in another district. Like I heard a case of someone who's working in Boston public schools and they're working in Western Mass now, but that, that's neither here nor there. That's a whole different subject. I guess some critics are worried that rolling back qualified immunity will leave other government workers, perhaps like social workers or perhaps teachers, and leave them vulnerable to lawsuits or unable to make, you know, kind of difficult calls as part of their jobs. What do you make of that argument? Uh, well, I think it's a poor argument. I think they would have to show us some data to back that up. I've never heard of like a social worker doing something so heinous on the job that they're scared of being sued or people shying away from education or social work because they're so scared of possibly being sued on the job. I can't say the data supports it. We'd have to see some concrete data to back up that argument. Do you think that getting rid of qualified immunity would actually change police behavior? I think it will, cer- I think it will certainly help. If you know you're held liable and you know you might personally be on the hook financially or you might do prison time, you're going to be a lot more calculated in your actions. You're going to really be thinking, am I going to really go rough someone up over, you know, selling fake cigarettes or something? Is this really what I'm going to do today? You're probably going to have second second thoughts about doing it. Which would probably be a good thing. Absolutely. (laughs) Like... You would think that um, officers, especially with like the, the power that they have, that 
they would kind of, uh, like you were saying, be more calculated, be more thoughtful and, and conscious of their actions. But I guess this qualified immunity has kind of given them such blanket of protection that they just do kind of whatever they want. Pretty much. Wow. Do you know any other, is there any other country, I guess, in the world that has a similar thing to our version of qualified immunity? I apologize, uh, Chaylin. I'm not as versed in other countries, I guess, as I should be. I can't really speak to the policing and, you know, the European Union or Central America or right. some of the Asian countries. I just, I just don't know. It's definitely a thing I need to do more research on. I guess what's next for you and your organization? What's the next step? Well, it's been an active year for us, you know, with coronavirus, obviously, everyone home and then all the social justice work. So I guess just continuing the mission of the NAACP. Nationally, policing is obviously at the forefront. Locally, you know, in the Mystic Valley area, we have a lot of things going on, such as the fight to get rid of Native American mascots and such, change the flag and sail for Massachusetts. We have like a housing grant right now that we're trying to, you know, help people with housing costs in the region, whether it's, you know, pay back rent, whether it's get into a brand new home. Wow. Yeah, you're, you're right. It sounds like a busy year. And then is there any type of like, perhaps like a voter action or any type of like support that the listeners can help out with, whether it's like you're reaching out to uh, legislators or any type of um, anything. What, what can we do? How can we help? If we're encouraging all our members to blow up every single legislator and politician, write them, explain to them how you feel about qualified immunity and other things. We're encouraging everyone to get out and vote. We can't endorse specific candidates because the NWSP is nonpartisan, but we're encouraging people to support candidates that, you know, support the mission of the NAACP and just to help spread the word, help people register and encourage, you know, a strong turnout in November. Right. I guess, is there anything else that you would, you know, want to let us know? Just encouraging everyone just to keep, keep up the positivity this year. Since we've had so much negativity, learn more about policing in America, be more politically active, vote, you know, Join our NWACP grants. We can use some more members. We want to be as big and have as much political clout as police unions. So like, you know, more members, the more, <laughs> more the merrier. Right, right. I hear that. Perfect. Well, Zane, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll have to have you back. I want to hear like more progress on this. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me, Shailen. Really appreciate the opportunity to be on the Dell. We'll be right back. Do you like candles? What about fun ones that make you feel good? Etta Arlene candles are handcrafted vegan soy candles made in super small batches with lots of love. They smell good and have awesome messages on them for you and your friends. They make great gifts for all of the amazing people in your life. Check them out online at ettaarlenecandles.com. Selective enforcement seems to be the name of the game these days, uh, at least for our Justice Department. And we saw that on full display this week as Attorney General Bill Barr, our nation's top cop, was grilled by Democrats in the House this week. Here's a nice little exchange between uh, Representative Pramila Jayapal of Washington State and uh, the Attorney General. The president told governors on a telephone call that the way to deal with the protesters of police brutality and systemic racism like in Lafayette Square is that, quote, you have to get much tougher. You have to dominate. If you don't dominate, you're wasting your time. These are terrorists. And he also talked about you on that call, sir. Here's what he said. He said, the attorney general is here, Bill Barr, and we will activate Bill Barr and activate him strongly. 
Do you remember that call, Mr. Barr? Yes, I do. But he wasn't talking about protesters. He was talking Mr. about Barr, rioters. Mr. Barr, apparently the president believes that you can be activated to implement the president's agenda and dominate American people exercising First Amendment rights if they're protesting against him. But let's look at how you respond when the protesters are supporters of the president. On two separate occasions, after President Trump tweeted, liberate Michigan to subvert stay-home orders to protect the public health of people in Michigan. Protesters swarmed the Michigan Capitol carrying guns, some with swastikas, Confederate flags, and one even with a dark-haired doll with a noose around its neck. Are you aware that these protesters called for the governor to be lynched, shot, and beheaded? No. You're not aware of that? I was not aware of that. Major protests in Michigan. You're the attorney general, and you didn't know that the protesters called for the governor to be lynched, shot, and beheaded. So well, obviously you couldn't be concerned about that. Well, there are a lot you, of protests around the United States, and uh, on June attorney 1st, general Barr, I was worried about the District of Columbia, which is federal. protests in certain parts of the country. You're very aware of those, but when protesters with guns and swastika very, and I am aware of, flags. of Excuse me, Mr. Barr, this is government. my time and I control it. <clears throat> you are aware of certain kinds of protesters, but in Michigan, when protesters carry guns and Confederate flags and swastikas and call for the governor of Michigan to be beheaded and shot and lynched, somehow you're not aware of that. Somehow you didn't know about it, so you didn't send federal agents in to do to the president's supporters what you did to the president's protesters. The attorney general is the top law enforcement officer in the country. Uh, that office is nominated by the president. If a new president would come a new attorney general, uh, you could vote for president on, on November 3rd. Uh, we just learned that the economy contracted by nearly 33% last quarter. Since the start of the pandemic, tens of thousands of businesses have shuttered and millions upon millions of Americans are unemployed. Republicans revealed their latest bill in response to the economic collapse, and while it includes another $1,200 stimulus check, it quickly goes downhill from there. The proposal would reduce the federal boost to unemployment benefits, cutting the weekly payment from $600 to $200. The $200 unemployment boost would expire December 31st, because obviously there will be a cure and we'll have full employment again by December 31st. The bill adds $105 billion for education funds, but two-thirds of that would only go to schools that reopen with in-person instruction, which you can't do because corona. Republicans threw in $30 billion in extra military funding, $1.75 billion for a new FBI building. Food assistance will not be expanded to help the newly tens of millions now unemployed, and, would, and it would end uh, eviction protections as 23 million Americans report their inability to pay next month's rent. Now for the good part. The Republican bill will double the three martini lunch deduction. That's a tax deduction for reimbursed business meals. Yeah, and that, that, that's it. There is no other good part. Republicans will now negotiate to reconcile their bill with the Democrats' much more generous bill. Continuing along, our Supreme Leader, I mean President, has proposed via tweet that we delay the November 3rd election. I suppose, unbeknownst to him, this can only be done by an act of Congress. Someone might want to check up on Joe Biden during this nationwide lockdown. He's saying some very strange things. Biden pushed a bizarre conspiracy theory 
It was that President Trump may try and delay the 2020 election. Joe Biden says he thinks President Trump will try to delay the November election. Biden did not provide any evidence for this charge. Trump is somehow going to move the election. It's just so dumb. I mean, I can't believe, you know, we have to cover this, but we do because it was brought up by a major party candidate. This is an attempt to frighten people. This is all the Democrats have is an effort to frighten their own people into thinking that this is going to be some kind of a coup. Whereas, in fact, uh, the president, I think, would is looking forward to this, clearly wants to have an election. Thanks for playing, Mr. President. And finally, our nation's first black president, Barack Obama, eulogized one of the greatest leaders of the civil rights movement, John Lewis, on Thursday. Here's a little bit of President Obama. If politicians want to honor John, and, and, and I'm so grateful for the legacy and work of all the congressional leaders who are here. But th th there's a better way than a statement calling him a hero. You want to honor John? Let's honor him by revitalizing the law that he was willing to die for. And by the way, naming it the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, that is a fine tribute. But John wouldn't want us to stop there, just trying to get back to where we already were. Once we pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, we should keep marching to make it even better by making sure every American is automatically registered to vote, including former inmates who've earned their second chance. By adding polling places and expanding early voting and making Election Day a national holiday so if you are somebody who's working in a factory or you're a single mom who's got to go to her job, and doesn't get time off, you can still cast your ballot by guaranteeing that every American citizen has equal representation in our government, including the American citizens who live in Washington, D.C. and in Puerto Rico. They're Americans. by ending some of the partisan gerrymandering so that all voters have the power to choose their politicians, not the other way around. And if all this takes eliminating the filibuster, another Jim Crow relic, in order to secure the God-given rights of every American, then that's what we should do. President Obama drew a comparison between Lewis's participation during the civil rights movement you know, the one that included dogs and fire hoses, and the current protests for racial justice happening across America, the ones that include federal officers throwing Americans into unmarked vans. We can all end this. Make sure you're registered to vote, friends. Um, you can register or request an absentee ballot online at thedelvpodcast.com. Let's all do our part to form a more perfect union. And that's The Delve. I'll see you next week.